Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no clue how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. Today, I'm going to wrap up the discussion of early Roman history and how it pertains to Roman self-image rather than factual history. Let me just briefly recap part one of the presentation from last time. Early Roman history, that is to say the first few centuries, is covered by a number of ancient writers. However, they all wrote after the records of the city of Rome were lost, meaning they had to piece together what they could remember. Any genealogist who ever needed to find records from San Francisco predating 1906, or records from here in South Carolina from before General Sherman's little jaunt through the state, knows the kinds of problems that this can pose. As a result, the stories of Rome's founding have to be taken with a huge grain of salt for any historian attempting to write an accurate account. However, for historians who are more interested in the stories as a means of understanding the Roman worldview, well, now we've got something to work with. The story I relayed to you in the first half of the discussion was full of elements that the Romans personally identified with. Their Trojan roots connected them to the Hellenized world, a world they both respected and admired. The rustic roots of Romulus and Remus, well, that would have played very well among the Romans. We think of the Romans as an urbanized society, the Forum, the Colosseum, etc. But that's a bit of a later development. The Roman heart was highly agrarian, and yet, despite their lowly state, Romulus and Remus were not just secretly royal, they were semi-divine. And of course, a good Roman always took Ernie Hudson's advice and self-identified as a god if asked. They created their own society rather than remain subjects elsewhere. Well, we see that same mindset much later in Roman history when Caesar stated that he would rather be first among barbarians than second man in Rome. Sounds a little more eloquent than a big fish in a little pond. Interestingly, there's a lot more of this, not in the actual founding itself, but in the stories of Romulus that followed. So, in the second half of the episode, I'm going to take a look at the reign of the first king. I'll talk about what elements of the stories appear to be backstories that the Romans developed to explain their own culture, and what elements of the stories appear, at least on some level, to be real. The stories about Romulus found in Livy and other ancient sources include a long list of battles that he fought, laws that he enacted, etc. But there are four key elements that I want to look at here. They are, and, and I'm going to talk about these in a specific order. One, the creation of the patrician and plebeian orders. Two, the acceptance of outcasts from other settlements. Three, the infamous rape of the Sabines and four, the integration of conquered peoples into the Roman fold. Let's take these one at a time. Patricians and plebeians, or plebs for those of you who remember playing the video game Caesar II back in the day. A lot of people think of the difference between them as being one of socioeconomic class in the modern sense. Uh, a lot of people would be wildly mistaken. Let me be clear, most patricians were wealthy and most plebs were poor. But that was not what defined the two groups of people. Some of the wealthiest men in Roman history were actually plebs, and we find references to some patricians being what we might call mm, cash poor. In fact, the reason many patrician families would end up being major landowners was because, later on, 
agriculture would be the only money-making profession patricians could legally take part in. There are a couple of possible explanations for what made the difference in the beginning. Some versions of the story say that patricians were those who were legitimate sons, uh, meaning not born out of wedlock. Another version says that at the very beginning, the only requirement to be a patrician was that you actually knew who your father was, wedlock or no. But it doesn't seem to have been wealth. That's why many historians today often prefer the term orders instead of classes, since you can theoretically move between modern concepts of socioeconomic class by simple changes in your bank account, whereas a pleb was always a pleb, no matter how many gold-dusted sex slaves they could afford. So why have the distinction? This is perhaps the most important distinction Roman society could make, so explaining its origins was paramount to the existing order. The reason the distinction existed, or at least the social structure being legitimized here, is something called patronage. That's one of those terms that any history student listening to this should include on your vocabulary list, along with patrician and plebs. Patronage. Patronage was a symbiotic relationship between the orders, and it was codified in the laws Romulus passed. I'm going to share with you the actual laws regarding this, uh, courtesy of the Roman Law Library, since they pretty much explain how the system worked. Quote, The following regulations in regard to patronage were determined then by him, meaning Romulus. The patricians were required to interpret the law for their own clients, to bring suit on behalf of clients when wronged, and to support them in the action. The clients were required to contribute to the dowry of their patron's daughters when they were given in marriage and their parents were impoverished, to pay ransom to the enemy if their patrons or their children became prisoners of war, to discharge the obligation from their own resources if their patron was condemned in a private suit or incurred a monetary penalty in a public suit. In common to both, it was neither holy nor lawful to bring suit, to testify, or to cast a vote the one against the other. He who was convicted of doing any of these things was held by the law of treason. Unquote. So, each patrician acted as legal protection for all of his clients, bearing in mind that there was no publicly supported police force for many centuries of early Roman history. And all of those clients supported their patron in times of trouble. And it is noteworthy that the actual law spells out what was to happen if a patrician was broke, which sort of settles the whole class versus order thing, doesn't it? Those are the official terms of the arrangement, but there were fringe benefits too. Clients formed an enormous entourage around their patrician patrons, just like celebrities or bar-hopping jerks do today. Uh, patricians loved having a crowd of rear-end-kissing moochers hanging off them wherever they went, and the more hangers-on, the more important you appeared. And for the moochers, well, they mooched. These are just like the crowds of, uh, well, morons and parasites that hang around people who are famous for being famous. When I originally did this presentation back in 2010, I used Paris Hilton as an example because at that time she was culturally relevant. I don't know who uh, really is famous today for being famous, uh, probably a Kardashian or something. In any case, the clients fed off the largesse of their patron, promoted themselves, and asked for favors as if their patron was Marlon Brando on this, the day of his daughter's wedding. 
And just as important as the ego stroking was the political importance that the patronage system took on. Here's where we come to the real point, and of course, it's political. The Roman Senate, despite what the movies might imply, wasn't an actual legislative body. It discussed, then advised. The actual voting on legislation took place in the different popular assemblies where regular people voted, but regular people might just be beholden to the interests of their patrons. Remember, clients and patrons were not allowed to cast votes against each other. Can you see why the Romans might want to legitimize this by tying the system to their founding father? Now, the other three elements of the story are all related, and the story goes something like this. I'm going to take them all together at the same time here. Romulus and his band of rowdy protesters, you remember, the ones who overthrew that jerk Amulius, they're apparently not enough in number to make up a whole city. Romulus uh, called for people from all over the region to come to Rome to help settle the city, and Livy tells us that new plots of land were added, quote, rather in the hope of an increased population in the future than in view of the actual number of the inhabitants of the city at that time, unquote. If you're like me, you've studied early American land records, and you might have seen how some places, like uh, western New York as an example, had property all laid out long before any Americans actually bought it and moved in. Livy describes something similar here, and like here in America, Rome became a travel destination for the region's uh, tired, poor, and huddled masses. And men came in droves. Men from all over. Men from all manly walks of life. Men working in all sorts of manly trades and manly occupations. Men who wanted to put their past lives behind them and start fresh. Well, this is actually a major problem for the future of the city. And you can guess what the problem was that these men might encounter. Or should I find another way to beat you over the head with it? It wasn't toxic masculinity. It was just masculinity. Yeah, it turns out women in the region were something of a a sought-after commodity because women didn't feel tired, poor, or huddled enough to make the trip. Remember, Rome at that time, wasn't the cosmopolitan metropolis it is today, or even as it would have been in Caesar's time. Rome at this point was a backwoods, a muddy, swampy, malaria-infected hellhole, and I'm being very kind. So what to do? Uh, With apologies to modern gender study snobs, um, cavorting like the Greeks of old, not that there's anything wrong with that, won't produce a new generation of Romans. Well, Romulus came up with a plan and it was a plan as reasonable and rational as we might expect from a mob leading fratricidal compulsive liar. Word was sent out to the Sabines, a nearby group of people, that there was going to be a festival at Rome complete with games. A real family event. Bring the family, you know, your wives and your daughters and such. But remember, it's a family affair, so no weapons allowed. It's a spear-free zone, you see. Well, the Sabines, apparently a trusting people, hear this and say, what? A shady bunch of thieves and outlaws are throwing a party in the muddy, swampy, malaria-infected hellhole and want to invite us, little old unarmed us, and our unarmed wives and unarmed daughters too. Wow, sounds great. I'll bring the pasta salad. Need I go on? Of course I do. The Sabines from three towns show up, and when the celebration is in full swing, someone gives the high sign or something, and the Romans who rudely broke their own rules by showing up with weapons, 
rushed into the crowd of Sabines and carried off the women and had their way with them. This naturally triggers a war between Rome and the Sabines. Now, the ins and outs of the war really aren't important here. Well, a couple details are, but I'll get to those in a minute. But if you're really interested in how it played out, check out Livy, Book 1, Chapters 12 through 20. What's important to us right now is how the war ended, and it has to do with our last element of the story, the integration of conquered peoples. Apparently, the Sabine women themselves brokered some sort of peace deal. And I should mention, there are some plot holes in the story that seem to imply that the women might not have been entirely unwilling. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, this was a tiny little bit before the Me Too movement, and the fact that this doesn't seem to be a clear-cut case of kidnapping and assault is certainly going to make some present-day pink-haired activists complain to my inbox, but still, there are hints in the story that suggest that they either liked the Romans, or maybe they Stockholmed themselves into liking them. I don't know which. But even if there was enough evidence in the text to have an actual debate about it, uh, that would be a debate for another day. The Romans came out ahead in the war, and the defeated Sabines were brought into Rome and integrated into Roman society. You remember I mentioned earlier that the Romans had been trying to increase their population? They invited immigrants to their city and even plotted out property lines for future residents. Well, here are those future residents. One of the unique features of Roman expansion, and one that tends to surprise people with only a high school level of Roman history knowledge, wasn't that they conquered, 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 but that they were extraordinarily inclusive, to use the modern term, and that it was their good treatment of defeated enemies that won them a good reputation around the Mediterranean world. In a later installment of Notes on History, I might come back to Rome's reputation in the ancient world, and we'll see how many people around the Mediterranean actually invited the Romans in. And their surprisingly good reputation might have started right here with the Sabines. But just in case I don't get to it, check out Thomas Madden's Empires of Trust. The first couple of chapters lay this out pretty well. Now, the story of the rape of the Sabines raises an important question, one that any reasonable professional historian is bound to ask, and that is this. WTF? Really? This is a story the Romans wanted to tell about themselves? Hi, I'm from Greece, land of democracy and philosophy. Oh, hi, I'm from Egypt, land of the pyramids. Oh, hi, I'm from Rome. We're descended from thieves and rapists. <sighs> These are the kinds of things that anti-American scholars, and I'm being generous, say about our founding fathers when they complain about America. Can you imagine Americans making up stories like this to illustrate how great their founding fathers were? This could be an indication that the story is rooted in some form of truth. After all, why make up such an awful story about your ancestors? At the end of the monarchy and beginning of the Republic, there is a story about the downfall of the last king of Rome, which indicates that, despite what HBO's Rome might suggest, the Romans were actually not super cool with rape when it came to the women that they respected. And since the women in question were the ancestors of many Romans, we are led to question why this story appears so early in the Roman view of their own history. Well, part of this is simply to explain how so many Romans were of Sabine origin. But my gut instinct is that it can't be the only real reason. Um, you know, if your name is O'Brien and your ancestors came to the United States in the middle of the 19th century, you can reasonably guess that at some point in your family's history, there may have been a potato famine-inspired migration. If you lived in ancient Rome and your name was Claudius, which is a good solid Sabine name, 
how do you come up with a story like this to explain your origins? Yay, thieves and rapists! After all, the Sabines weren't from the other end of the planet. Nobody comes up with a story like this to explain how a family in Dallas ended up in Fort Worth. Well, I'm inclined to agree with Dr. Francis Titchener, a professor of history and classics at Utah State University, who suggested that the moral of the story is the Roman view of supremacy of the state over family and self. This does seem to be a recurring theme in Roman history, and in this case, it does seem that a lot of people had to let go of personal freedom and individual rights, honor, dignity, etc., uh, in order to ensure that the continuation of the Roman state beyond its first five minutes or so. Now, there may be another deeply rooted psychological explanation for this, not for nothing, but as I said, a rape would be at the center of the birth of the Republic as well. I'm not going to explore this idea psychologically since I'm not entirely qualified to do so. But something else Dr. Titchener points out is that the Romans went to great lengths to explain all the details of the story of Romulus. They were very keen to make sure that all the loose ends were tied up, and it's likely that the details are where we get more fiction than fact. Remember the Momsen rule I mentioned in the first part of the, the discussion. So using that rule, what can we divine from this story? What are modern historians willing to accept as actual history? Well, that's actually, it's, it's quite a controversy. Some historians don't consider any of this to be true. Others fly fast and loose with evidence to relate it as almost all true, and others fall somewhere in between. So what can be said about the founder of Rome? Did he even exist? Well, we could say that whoever was most prominent in leading a group of settlers to the Palatine Hill, regardless of any other stories, is the historical Romulus, even if that leader went by another name. That's sort of like saying that the historical King Arthur is whoever won the Battle of Mount Baden, because it's the one of the only, if not the only, actual historical events that we can tie to the myths. Other elements of the story, like the creation of the orders or the policy of free immigration, seem more like trends than actual events, and so probably they can't be ascribed to the same person. And the rape of the Sabines? Well, as I said, there's plenty of holes in the story that indicate that it probably didn't happen that way, and the phrase rape of the Sabines may be a little dramatic license. To be brief, when you get into the details, you find out that the Sabines weren't too quick to come to the rescue. Apparently, a lot of them didn't think, seem to think that this was a big deal, and the women were wooed by the Romans in some versions of the story. Sometimes, historians have to repeat myth and rumor along with a grain of salt, because there is very little else to work with. They essentially have to fill in the gaps. Not all history has to be this way, but when it is, it leaves historians with plenty to talk about. Speaking of things to talk about, in the next installment, I'm going to spend uh, two episodes just telling you a fun little story, uh, having nothing to do with the Romans, but something I think you'll enjoy, and my reasoning will be explained uh, in part two of that story. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.